Let's begin where we were this morning in Mark 12, because we had a couple follow-up questions on the text from this morning. And so we'll begin there, and then we'll branch out from there to a number of other passages. Mark chapter 12. Uh, the first question says this, in Mark 12, the vineyard is Israel, the vine dressers, the religious leaders, the son is Jesus. What is the inheritance that they were trying to take? Do you remember they said, here's the son, uh, let's, you know, let's take him, verse 7. Those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. What is this they were trying to take? I believe that what they were trying to take was the position of king over the people. Jesus was the rightful king as the Messiah, and the religious leaders of Israel wanted not merely to be the religious leaders, but they wanted to control the people, dominate the people, the people to be theirs. Well, they were ne- the people of God were never theirs. They were simply stewards who were supposed to be faithful to lead the people of God, but they wanted to usurp that, and they wanted to basically take our Lord's position as the one who would be the ultimate leader, the king, the Messiah, Uh, the one in charge, if you will, of the people of God. And then the next question on Mark 12, here also on verse 7, because it says, Therefore uh, those vine dressers said, This is the heir, come let us kill him. So the question is, did the religious leaders actually know that Jesus was the Messiah? Mark 12, 7 implies this knowledge. You are correct. It certainly does. We can say this much. They certainly knew he claimed to be the Messiah because he made no bones about that, he, he claimed. And they knew he backed up his claims by his works. In fact, on one occasion he said, if you don't believe me because of what I say, at least believe me for my works' sake. My works back it up. So they had all the reason to believe. But, but it's important to understand that um, when it comes to believing something, it's a little bit more complicated than we may at first glance think, because... Um, it's, it's very easy for someone to know something is true but refuse to believe it because it is willful unbelief. It's not a matter of intellectual, like, well, I, this doesn't make sense to me. Well, it makes sense. I just don't want to believe this. I don't want to accept this. So the, the leaders of Israel knew. In fact, that's important to keep in mind when you read, for example, in Matthew 12 or in Mark, I think it's chapter 3, about the, the leaders of Israel committing the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin was willful. They didn't sort of make a mistake when they attributed Jesus' works to Satan. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were trying to come up with anything to discredit Jesus, so they said, well, he does what he does by Satan. They knew that wasn't true. They knew he was casting out demons by the power of God. But that was, again, willful unbelief, a choice that said, we are not going to embrace this. We're not going to believe it. So did the leaders know? Well, they knew however you want to define that, they knew, but they certainly weren't willing to accept that. All right, next question says this, uh, also on Mark. I have often heard that Mark uses the word immediately. He does a lot, and and not all of our English translations bring that out. Euthus is the Greek word. Uh, I've often heard that Mark uses the word immediately, not like we usually mean it, but maybe in the sense of the next thing I'm telling you about or something similar. As you studied through Mark, have you found this to be the case, or do you think he really means immediately? And the answer is it depends on the usage in each context. Mark sometimes does use the word immediately to mean immediately. Jesus immediately went from this to that. But he also does use the word sometimes to say, okay, and next in the story, and next in the story. 
So like any other word, and this is so important in biblical studies, it's not really accurate to say this word means. I know we all say that sometimes in Bible study. I say that sometimes in preaching. This word means. Well, a more accurate way to say it is words have a range of meaning, and in a given context, this is what the word means because this, how, this is how it's being used. Classic example is the way Paul uses the term justified in Romans and the way James uses it in James 2. They are using it in completely different ways. Paul using it to talk about our legal standing before God. We are justified by faith. James using it to talk about vindication before people. We are justified, that is proven to be righteous, whereas Paul used it declared to be righteous. Same Greek word. So you can't say, well, this Greek word means. We all do that. But it's rather, this Greek word has a range of meaning, and in this context, this is how it's being used. And thus is the case with the word immediately. Each context is unique, which is why, by the way, some of our English translations don't always consistently translate the word, the Greek word, euthus, immediately, because it doesn't mean immediately in that given context. It just means, okay, next up, I'm going to tell you about this, etc. All right, next question says this, uh, what does the Scripture say about fellowship, and how do I do it better? Of course, the key passage, if you will, or book on this topic, uh, we, don't, we won't even take time to turn to it because we'd have to look at the whole book to get a full-orbed view, but is First John. John uses the term fellowship often throughout his letter. Uh, but just some general comments about it in light of the way the question was asked. What does Scripture say about it? How do I do it better? A fellowship in its most basic form, if you will, or most basic definition, is simply a description of sharing our common life in Christ. Fellowship, koinonia, that which is common. So what is it that we all have in common? Well, there aren't many things we all have in common, because as I look out, we have male and female. So immediately, that's not all, we don't all have that in common, because some of you are male and some of you are female. And uh, some of you are from the south and some from the north, some from the east, some from the west, some you know, from large families, small families. So what is it that we have in common? Well, one thing, as believers, our life in Christ. So the word koinonia is uh, fellowship, commonality. So it is a sharing of our common life in Christ. So what is, what is it? How do I do it better? Well, one thing I would recommend is the book of Proverbs says, he who would have friends should show himself friendly. And the reason that verse comes to mind is sometimes, and not always this is the case, but sometimes Christians will say, well, I don't really have good fellowship with other believers. And what they're saying is, I really don't have good friendships and relationships. Well, if that's the case, then maybe just, I'm not saying it is the case, but at least look in the mirror and say, am I showing myself friendly? Or am I basically showing up at church and saying, here I am, serve me. You know, what, what is the perspective? Are you showing yourself friendly? Are you, so what I would say is this, uh, how do you do it better? Well, the best way I know to do is seek to practice the one another's of the New Testament. Pray for one another, encourage one another, uh, bear one another's burdens. There are so many one another's. Seek to do that, expecting nothing in return. And my guess is you will find your fellowship with other believers better. I, anytime I think of that, I think of the true story I heard many years ago about this little boy named Chad who uh, he just didn't have many friends at all at school. And, uh, and his mom always worried because when he would go out the door to go to school in the morning, she'd see him walk to the bus stop and all the other boys and girls were talking and playing. He was kind of off by himself and it broke her heart as a mom to see this. And, 
And this just was life for little Chad. And then one day he said, oh, next week is Valentine's Day. And I want to make a Valentine for every kid in my class. And when he said that, her heart, his mom's heart just sank because she thought, I know he's not going to get one. He's not going to get a single Valentine. And he's going to be devastated. But she helped him painstakingly make all these Valentines day after day, leading up to Valentine's Day. And he had one for every single boy and girl in his class. And he took them off to school that day. He was so excited. He couldn't wait to go to school. And, and then as he was coming home, she thought, he's going to be devastated. I'm going to make him some milk and cookies. So maybe that'll take the edge off when he comes in. And so she sees him get off the bus. None of the other kids talk to him. He comes walking up. And she thinks, man, the minute he opens the door, he's going to burst into tears. And so he comes in the door and he says, shakes his head, not a one, not a one. And of course, as a mom, it ripped her heart out. And he said, not a one. I didn't forget a single one. Now that's the right attitude. You want to have fellowship, be others oriented. And I think you'll see it reciprocated and increase your fellowship. So seek to practice the one another's. Our next question says this, what is the connection between forgiveness and and the attitude of forgiveness to battle bitterness and trust. For instance, one can forgive another for stealing money, but would it be wise to put a thief in charge of the checkbook? And, of course, that's a practical question. We have all wrestled through those types of things. Uh, and I would just say, in general, I think the best answer to that is what Jesus said in Matthew 10 when he told his disciples, you need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. So that's the biblical balance. We are to be gentle that is not harsh with people, but wise as serpents, to not be foolish. So in answer to your question, you know, if you, if you let someone babysit your kids and they completely neglect them, the kids get hurt and all that, uh, should you forgive? Well, absolutely you should forgive. Uh, should you let them babysit the next time you're going somewhere? Maybe not. Not if there's not uh, more trustworthiness or if, if you're not really helping the person, right? I mean, again, that sounds harsh, and it sounds like, well, as Christians, we're supposed to be loving. That's right. But, we, beloved, we, keep, we need to keep wrestling with an accurate definition of love. It isn't loving to help someone be irresponsible. And so the best thing for someone in that case is maybe say, oh, I'd love for you to babysit my kids sometime. I just want to see some growth in responsibility, et cetera. That's the most loving thing, not to say, oh, I forgive you, I love you, so here are my kids again. Neglect them so they get hurt again. That's not really loving. But we tend to just get this sort of mushy definition of love that's not really a biblical definition of love. So uh, in answer to your question, uh, one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you put the person in the same position if they have done wrong, if there has not been some repentance, progress, etc., and that's not unloving and that's not unforgiveness. Our next question says this, uh, when Paul appealed to Caesar, of course this is Acts in the 20s, uh, where Paul has all these trials before Felix and Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and all that, and finally they say, well, he's out at Caesarea by the sea, and they say, uh, you know, you want to go back to Jerusalem and be tried? Paul realizes that's you kidding me, going back to Jerusalem? That is so biased. If I go back there, I'm not going to get a fair trial. So he appealed to Caesar. And uh, the question is, when Paul appealed to Caesar, was it actually Caesar who judged and released him or some court or representative of Caesar? No, uh, historical evidence would indicate, not specifically about Paul's situation, but historical documents say it was the right of every Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar and be heard by him. Now, you understand immediately the difficulty of that because there's one Caesar in a lot of cases, right? Well, that probably helps explain why when Paul got to Rome, 
Luke tells us at the end of the book of Acts that he was there waiting for two whole years in his own rented house. He could have people come to him. He couldn't go free, but people could come to him because if you're going to be, be uh, appearing before Caesar, it may not be really quick. It may take some time. So Paul, we know, waited at least two years, and we don't know if it was more than that because uh, Dr. Luke, all he tells us is that that's how he ends the book of Acts. So uh, it does, does seem that Paul would have eventually had his case before Caesar. And then if you put all the pieces together from the evidence we have in the New Testament, we don't have a definitive statement, but it appears that he was released. And during his release, he wrote, he did some more missionary travels. He wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. He was re-imprisoned, during which time he wrote 2 Timothy, and then he died uh, a martyr's death. All right, next question. This is from a little gal every month. We always have some little ones who have something puzzling them or something on their minds. And this little gal says, um, what animals will be in heaven? H-E-V-E-N. Heaven. That's a good spelling there. Uh, what animals will be, be in heaven? I personally believe, can't give you exact chapter and verse, but I believe all of them will be in heaven. And here's why I believe them. The new heaven and the new earth, it is clear from the book of Revelation, the terminology that is used, the phraseology that is used, that John is clearly connecting us back to Genesis pre-fall. In fact, I remember at one time I did just a comparison of all the phrases from Genesis and Revelation and how they link together. So if, in fact, the new heaven and the new earth is basically a restoration of what was lost in the fall, then it's going back to the beginning. And so God made all of these animals, and they were good. And so I personally believe that in the new heaven and the new earth that all the animals will be there. Now, I'm not saying all your pets will be there necessarily. In other words, every cat you've owned. or every I'm just talking about all the different uh, animals, variety of animals. I believe they will be there. They were created for God's glory. They are an amazing reflection of God's glory. All animals are. I think they will be in the new heaven and the new earth. And one of the reasons why some Christians don't think that is they fail to realize that eternity will not merely be heaven. That's the, that's the normal concept that most Christians have. Eternity consists of floating on a cloud wrapped in a diaper while you strum a harp. That is not heaven. That is not heaven. Heaven is new heaven, new earth. There's going to be a new earth, and so there's going to be, what are you going to do with the new earth? You're just going to have it vacant? Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the you know, meek, they shall inherit the earth. Now, most Christians don't like that thought. I don't want to be on earth during eternity. I want to be in heaven. Well, the new heaven and new earth will be dominated by the new Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. So I believe on the new earth there will be all the animals of the original creation because what a great reflection of the glory of God and the brilliance of God to create all of those animals. So uh, it's not chapter and verse, but it's implication by the description in both Matthew and in the book of Revelation. All right, next question says this. Um, I am a college student who is well involved in the realm of special education. How would you scripturally explain the relation between someone who is severely, uh, cognitively, intellectually delayed? And how would you describe that relation between that and their accountability for knowing Christ? This is something I've been wrestling through for years. And it's understandable that you do because it's, it's no different than what people wrestle through when they think about little ones who die. You have a little 
you know, a one-year-old toddler who dies, well, what, you know, or a two-year-old or a five-year-old. And, and you know, how do you wrestle through that? Well, there are a number of passages that clearly indicate that God takes into account someone's level of accountability. One obvious illustration, do you remember when God judged the people of Israel? He said, okay, you're not going to go into the promised land. Well, you, but only those to a certain age. Remember that? Those under a certain age, you will go in. Those over, you're going to wander around till you all die off in the wilderness. And even at the end of the book of Jonah, God says, why should not, when he's rebuking Jonah, why should I not have mercy on this, this great city, which has, depending on your English translation, it has, I think, I don't remember the exact figure, like 120,000 little ones who don't know their right hand from their left. Why shouldn't I show mercy to these people, these little ones who don't have, you know, they don't really have any say-so for the wickedness of the city. So this is where the idea comes from. It's a very popular notion of the age of accountability, which the Bible doesn't really specify an age of accountability, but it often talks about a condition of accountability. At what condition, at what stage does God hold people responsible? Now, ultimately, God is going to sort all that out, and we can trust him. Will not the judge of the earth do right? But if you want to you have some exposure to some of those passages, because there are a number, uh, then I would encourage you to go to, uh, you can jot this down, whoever asked this question, uh, go to the Matthew series, either on the website or on the app, and number 108 in the Matthew series, uh, I, I did a message where I went to a number of passages, some of these I mentioned, which talk about how God views accountability of those who at whatever stage they're at, etc. Now, again, it doesn't answer all the questions because the Bible itself doesn't answer all the questions. Ultimately, we trust it to the goodness and sovereignty of God. But the Bible does have to say quite a bit about that. So uh, I would encourage you to go and, and listen to that. Maybe it'll be helpful. All right, let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians, chapter 5. And this passage will, I think, answer... And this uh, apparently or pretty obviously is from a lady uh, because she says this, I know that the Bible says to be submissive to our husbands. Uh, Does that mean we are not allowed to have an opinion and and, uh, have to do everything they say? This is a valid question. Through the years, I've had a lot of gals ask this question. They say, listen, I want to be a godly wife. I want to please the Lord. And if the Lord says, be submissive to your husband, I want to know what that means practically. What does that look like? Very valid question. And I think there's a really neat answer here in Ephesians 5 that's not necessarily found. I don't mean it's not in here, but the answer to this question is sometimes missed because all we look at is verses 22 through 24, which say, wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. And it still leaves the question, what does that look like? Just as this person is asked, what does that mean? Well, if you keep reading, I think we're given a great clue what is at the heart of that. Because in the very last verse, as the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is summarizing, notice what he says. Nevertheless, let each one of you, talking to the men now, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. That's not surprising. That's what Paul said in verses 25 and following to us husbands. But here's what is interesting. When Paul summarizes what he had said to the wife, he doesn't talk about submitting. 
Instead, he says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, that is a great clue to a wife what it means to submit to your husband. It means that you are respectful to your husband. So does it mean, in answer to your question, we're not allowed to have any opinion? No. It doesn't mean that at all. Does it mean we just do everything they say? No. Can you not talk with your husband and interact and and ask questions and interject? Sure. That's not the issue. That's not disobeying Scripture. The issue is your respect. And by the way, that was the brilliance behind the book, Love and Respect, which is a great book that basically got ruined because of the way the author presented it. I was so thrilled and aggravated at the same time when I read the book because one of the things the author does in the book Love and Respect is he centers in on, and I I thought about for years, writing a very similar book because uh, having done so much marriage counseling through the years, I've seen how often it comes down to love and respect. So I thought, we need a book on love and respect. Just show how key it is in marriage. So then the book comes out, and unfortunately, the way the author phrases it, he says, men need respect and women need love. That's not true. Men don't need respect. Women don't need love. But let me tell you something. You need love and respect if you want to have a good marriage. So it's not a need. It's not like air. You need air, right? If you don't have air, you die. You need water. You don't, if you're a man, you don't need respect. If you're a woman, you don't need love. You don't need that to exist. But that is needed in a marriage. And so if the author had just phrased it that way, instead of saying, a woman needs love, a man needs respect, it would have been so much better of a book because what it is basically saying is, this is what God said is needed in a marriage to make marriage work well. And he's right. That is what is needed in a marriage. And so when Paul summarizes and he talks about submission, He talks about the importance of respect because if you have in a marriage a husband who does not love his wife or a wife who does not respect her husband, there is immense damage. There's just immense damage. It's hard to overcome that. That's why I say the better wording is that is needed in a marriage, though you and I don't need any of that individually. So uh, in answer to your question, what does submission mean? It means you are respectful. So you want to disagree with your husband? Say, honey, I don't know that that's the right way to go. That's, that's not disobeying Scripture. Honey, I'd like to talk to you about that because I'm not sure that's... It's, what is your attitude? Is it respectful or disrespectful? And by the way, I would say this. The fact that the Holy Spirit tells us that this is what we need to do tells us if you have any brains as a man or as a woman, it tells you, you know what, I don't naturally do this. As a man, I don't naturally love my wife sacrificially. That's why God tells me to do it. And as a woman, I don't naturally show respect to my husband. That's why I need, God tells me I need to do it. Because he hits us right where we're weakest or right where it hurts, where we have the tendency not to do. So that's what, that's what it means to be, in answer to your question, uh, submissive to your husband. It means that you're respectful in the way you relate to your husband. And by the way, society knows this. They maybe can't categorize it, but look at so many of the sitcoms. I'm not suggesting you watch them, but look at so many of the sitcoms which they poke fun at this very thing. What is so common and popular in sitcoms? Women who are disrespectful to their husbands and husbands who are unloving toward their wives. Boy, can Hollywood make a mockery of that and make fun of that and show how awful Marriages are when you don't have that. 
They, they maybe don't even know what they're saying, but they're showing how awful it is in a marriage when you have this wife who's always nagging, disrespectful to her husband, husband who's, who's unattentive, unloving toward his wife. And then they can really make it funny when it's not funny. It's the results of disregarding what God says. Our next question, this one also happens to be on marriage. It says, what is the best piece of marriage advice you could give someone? What about Bible verses? Okay, um, I'll, I'll, I'll state the, the one if I had to give one in a Bible verse. And, and, but let me just preface it by saying this. The Bible verses I'm going to give you are not found in any of the passages on marriage. It's not Ephesians 5. It's not Colossians 3. It's not 1 Peter 3. Not, not any of that. I think the best Bible verses on marriage. Well, let me give the principle, and then I'll give you the verses. What is the best piece of marriage advice you could give someone? And it is this. You want to have a great marriage? Try to outgive your spouse. Just try to outgive your spouse. Rather than going into your marriage with the attitude, what can I get out of this? What, you know, what are you going to do for me? You know, try to outgive your spouse. You know, so many couples, when they stand at the altar, they say, oh, I love you. And what they mean is, I love you, and I'm hoping you can do a lot for me. That's really what they're thinking. They, they maybe don't, you know, think it out thoroughly, but that's what they're thinking. So instead of that perspective, you know, I love me, and I want you to do for me what I want you to do. It's, I, I, I love you, that is, I want to outgive you. And why would I say that? It maybe sounds strange, because what is love as defined by Scripture? The most common verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave. So if you want the best Bible verses that I know of on marriage, it's Mark 10, 44 and 45. Whoever would be greatest among you, let him be your servant of all. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the, uh, that's the recipe for a good marriage. You come into it with the attitude of a servant. I will outserve my spouse and outgive my spouse. And you take two people who go at marriage that way, it's a tremendous marriage. All right, next question is this. Um, where do we get the teaching that some spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, etc., went away when the last apostle died? Is it in Scripture, or do we just teach that because these gifts aren't all that common today. Uh, two or three comments here, statements. First of all, it is in Scripture. It is in Scripture, but you can't just turn to a Bible verse that simply states it. Sort of like the doctrine of the Trinity. You can't just, you can't find a verse in the Bible that says there are three eternal persons in one divine nature, known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are equal in substance but distinct in subsistence. Do you have a Bible verse that says that? No, you can't. Is the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible? Absolutely it is. But you can't just find a verse that says that. So if you take all of Scripture, all the indications of Scripture uh, in the New Testament, and I think it is strong indication that, as you stated it well, that some of the gifts, specifically the sign gifts, ceased with the apostles. Now, it is a very detailed subject. It's sort of like if you were asking a question on the Trinity, could I do it in five minutes? No. So my recommendation would be this. I'm not just, you know, putting you off, but uh, I would encourage you, I don't know, two or three years ago, I did a message titled, and I'm sure it's on the web, What About Miracles, Healing, and Tongues? And I go through all the scriptural evidence for what is technically known in theology as the cessation position. Cessation as opposed to continuationism. Continuationism says 
all the spiritual gifts continue on. Cessationism says no, some of the sign gifts ceased. So I would encourage you to, to pull up that and just listen to it and wrestle through some of the evidence. Interestingly, I just had a conversation this week uh, with a, a Bible college student who is taking an independent study that I'm overseeing, and uh, he comes from a background of non-cessationism or continuationism. And he stopped by my office because of the independent study, and he said, uh, I'm reading a book called Strange Fire, which is a really good book on this subject. And he said this. I, I appreciate this very much because he said, I have to admit, I didn't realize there was this much biblical evidence for the cessationist position as I'm reading through this. And I especially appreciate knowing his background coming from an, a continuationist, believing that all of these continue on. So I appreciated his intellectual honesty in allowing the facts to be the facts. Uh, so all that to say this, and answer your question, uh, is it just, do we just say this because we don't know what to do with these gifts, or is there scriptural evidence? There is scriptural evidence. So uh, uh, listen to that message or pick up a copy of Strange Fire, uh, the book, and it's, uh, it'll... it'll walk you through that. All right, next question says this, a question about double predestination. Uh, Double predestination, let me just give you the background in case you're not familiar with the view. It's the view that we know that the doctrine of election is in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. Ephesians 1, chosen to be in Christ before he ever laid the foundation of the world. Uh, You did not choose me, but I chose you, John 15. Uh, Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I mean, you could just go on and on. The doctrine of election or predestination is, is all over. Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, that's the doctrine of election slash predestination. But double predestination teaches uh, that God not only predestined to save some or elected, God predestined the damnation of people. That's double predestination. So this is a question about double predestination. And it says this, Judas was an apostate, uh, and that was prophesied. It was. Jesus said, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. So is that an example of a person uh, uh, to be predestined for damnation or destruction? So basically the question is saying, does the Bible teach double predestination? And the answer I would give to that is I believe the answer to that is no. And let me explain why. Several reasons. Number one, and I know this is just a logical one, but it's something worth considering. Double predestination is almost, uh, what word would I use? Just a completely useless idea because there's no need for predestination, for damnation, if we believe the Bible, because the Bible says we're already damned. Right? I mean, we're damned because we're sinners by birth, by choice, by practice. We're sinners in Adam. So we are damned. So what is that? Double predestination. For what? Because it's already a a truth. It's already a reality. Secondly, you ask about Judas. It's interesting that Jesus had no hesitancy saying, in the verses Luke 22, 22, if you want to jot it down, he had no hesitancy saying, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That is, it was determined that Judas would be the betrayer. So, in our minds, logically that means Judas had no choice and therefore he was not responsible. But in the very next breath, in the same verse, Jesus said this, Luke twenty-two twenty-two, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he was betrayed. 
In other words, the man who made the choice to do this, unconstrained, bears the responsibility for his damnation. And and then the other issue, turn to Romans 9, because if there is a passage that someone would turn to to support double predestination, it would be this one. And let me show you why I think, personally, it's not, uh, it's weak support for the idea. Uh, Romans 9.22 says this. And this is a passage on election, by the way. In verse 22, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now there's the verse. <clears throat> Some people say, See, these vessels have been prepared for destruction. Well, two comments about this. Notice that how Paul begins this verse. What if God, or if God, it is hypothetical. And by the way, in the Greek, it is, and I've translated this, it is more confusing than it is in the English. Because Paul is here talking, well, what if God wanted to do this? Or if God chose to do this, could anyone fault him? No, because God is God. But that's different than saying Paul is teaching that. He is saying, what if God chose to? Could anyone find fault with him? No, because God can do whatever he wants to do. Furthermore, here's the other interesting thing. He says, uh, what if God wanted to show his, etc., uh, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? The Greek verb there, I think, and I should have looked at this before I came tonight, but I think most of the, our English translations translate it as a passive, and that's valid. But the Greek construction here is just as validly middle. And so it could be translated what if God, etc., endured with much long serving the vessels of wrath who have prepared themselves for destruction? Putting the responsibility on men, which lines up, by the way, with what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, if we take him seriously, that hell was created for the devil and his angels. That is a very definitive statement. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. Now, people will go there. People will end up there. I believe not because they were doubly predestined, but because they prepare themselves for destruction. Or Jesus' words in Luke 22, woe to the man who makes that choice to betray him. So hell is created for the devil and his angels. People end up there because they choose to go there. So that, in answer to your question, I would, that would be my position. All right, next question says, we're in Romans, so back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 5. Verses 5 through 11 appear to teach work salvation. And indeed, they do appear to teach that. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man, who does evil of the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So how do we take this? It appears to teach work salvation. However, that contradicts other statements in Romans. What does this passage actually say? Great insight. You're right. It does appear that way, but a couple comments. First of all, keep in mind which section this is in the book of Romans. 118 through 320 is the condemnation section. It's not the justification section. It's not the salvation section. That is 321 to 521. 
So you've got to keep it in the context of what Paul is saying, trying to show man's condemnation. So in light of that, it is interesting to know that Paul says, you know, the one who would do good, you know, good works toward eternal life, and yet he would say in chapter 3, verse 12, however, however, they have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable, there is no one who does good, no, not one. So even if, hypothetically, you could do good and earn salvation, guess what? It's never going to work because there is no one who does good, no, not one. Which prompts Paul to say in chapter 3, verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That is, by deeds, by works, no flesh will be justified. So what is Paul saying there in chapter 2? Well, what Paul is saying here is this, what he says elsewhere in the book of Romans, and that is this. It is true that even though we are not saved by works, and the, the New Testament is patently clear on that, good works, you know James 2, good works accompany the life of someone who has genuine faith. So you can look at a person's life, generally speaking, now we're not talking about making categorical judgments, but a person's life reflects his condition before God. Are there exceptions? There was Lot, of course, Peter when he denied the Lord on that occasion. But Paul, what Paul is saying here is that life, or life's, a person's life is characterized by what's in his heart, whether there's genuine faith in Christ there or absence of faith there. And that is why, interestingly, throughout the book of Romans, Paul uses a fascinating little phrase called the obedience of faith. And he uses that repeatedly in the book of Romans because, one, to believe in Jesus, that is to place faith in Jesus, is obedience. Because God commands you to place faith in Jesus. But secondly, he uses that phrase because he is saying that true faith results in obedience. Not perfect obedience, not flawless obedience, but obedience. So he doesn't hesitate to make the kind of comments he does here in chapter 2 about what characterizes the life of someone who has genuine faith. But you're right, he's not contradicting what he teaches elsewhere about the only means of justification being by grace through faith alone. All right, to the book of Revelation for the last two questions. Revelation 3 and then the last book or the last chapter of this book, chapter 22. So Revelation chapter 3 Verse 5, part of the message to the church at Sardis, Jesus says this in verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Boy, you're talking about a verse that has struck fear in the lives of a lot of people like, oh, my word, what, am I going to do something that's going to result in Jesus blotting my name out? I, I've been asked this. I've lost track of it a number of times through the years. So here's the question. Here Jesus mentions not blotting out a name from the book of life. What is meant here? Is this able to be explained in light of the security of salvation? Can you explain this, please? And I would say this, and I'm not at all. I don't mean this being sarcastic or condescending, but please notice the verse because sometimes we just don't read the verse well. What does Jesus say? I will not. I will not do this. But sometimes people read this and say, oh, no, he's going to blot my name out. He says, I won't. So he, he's saying, I won't do this. Well, why would he say, I won't do this? People say, well, that must imply that he might do this, or he does this to some people. No, Jesus says he won't do this because this is interesting. We do know from historical sources that a common practice in the ancient city of Sardis was if a citizen of the city did something that was embarrassing to the city or shameful to the city, they would blot the person's name out of the registry of the city. 
And so in that context, Jesus is saying, by the way, I won't do that. I will never do that to you. You embarrass me. You, you know, you, you, um, you, you, you do something that's, uh, that discredits me. I'm not going to blot your name out. I won't do that. I'm not going to do what you know is done in your city to citizens of Sardis who do something disappointing, something unfortunate, do something wrong. I don't do that. But just read the verse. He will not do it. And don't let your logic say, well, that, he said it because he might do it. No, he won't do it. All right, Revelation 22, the very last question for the night. Revelation 22. Revelation 22, 12, Jesus says, My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Could you please explain what John meant by this or what Jesus meant by this? How does this square with the teaching that eternal life is not obtained by works but by saving faith in Jesus Christ? You are right on that the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the Bible also teaches that there is a day coming when we will stand before Jesus at the Bema seat of Christ to have our lives evaluated to be rewarded. It's not a punishment of sins, unconfessed sins, un- or whatever. It is simply an assessment of life for rewards. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, he speaks of this in Romans chapter 14. Uh, he speaks of this earlier in the book of Revelation. So what Jesus is simply saying to his church is this. Listen, I am coming suddenly. That's imminence. I could come at any time. And guess what? My reward is with me. So be faithful because when I come, I'm going to gather you. And, and, and the implication is once Jesus comes, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together and with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus all the church, all the raptured church, will appear before Jesus at the Bema seat of Christ to have our lives evaluated to be rewarded. So this has nothing to do with work salvation, earning your salvation. It has everything to do with the Lord's graciousness in rewarding his people for a life of faithfulness, a life of service to him. So that's what is being referred to here in Revelation 22, 12. All right, let's stand as we close. We'll close in prayer, and those who are headed to International Harvesters can make their way there, and the rest will be dismissed. So let's pray together. And Father, as we close with that great promise from Jesus and that great reminder from Jesus that when he returns, we will be gathered before him and he will assess our lives, evaluate our lives, and he will reward us. It's just humbling to think that he would even do such a thing because we certainly don't deserve salvation. And after that, we deserve no rewarding for anything. And yet in his immense mercy and grace. He grants us salvation by grace through faith and then, and then is willing and desirous to reward us for faithfulness and service to him. It humbles us to consider it and it motivates us. It encourages our hearts to live life in light of eternity for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.